This is Messages from the Middle. I'm Wendy Parrish. This is episode number four, The Boxer. In this episode, I talk about PTSD and my own experience with a PTSD diagnosis or what's called complex PTSD. I'll give you some of the techniques that I have used to manage my PTSD and just a little bit more of my story on how I got my diagnosis. Before we get started, I just wanted to say thank you so much to everyone who has been listening and messaging me and supporting me as I've launched this podcast. I've had a little bit of what I've called vulnerability flu last week because it was, I just knew that suddenly my whole story was just going to be out there and everyone has just been so amazing. So thank you so much. And if you have gotten any value from this podcast, it would be amazing and really helpful to me if you could leave a rating and a review, um, especially if you listen on Apple Podcasts. And also, I need to make a little bit of a correction. On my podcast where I talked about hiking Mount Kilimanjaro, I said something along the lines of hiking one of the seven highest peaks. Well, I know that the seven highest peaks are actually in the Himalayas. I know this. What I meant was the highest peaks in each of the seven continents. And I don't think I was very clear on that, but I just wanted to make it clear that I do know that Mount Kilimanjaro is the highest peak in the, on the continent of Africa, not one of the seven highest peaks in the world. With that being said, let's get started. Have you noticed that people don't usually share their struggles until they're over? It's not until they've defeated their dragon and marched victoriously home that they share their story. Well, I'm not one of those people. My name is Wendy Parrish, and I am in the middle of my story. From the middle, I've learned a few things, and I would like to bring you into my story. This is the good, the struggle, the light, the dark, and the lessons learned. This is Messages from the Middle. There's a verse in the song, The Boxer, by Simon and Garfunkel, and it goes, In the clearing stands a boxer and a fighter by his trade, and he carries the reminder of every glove that laid him down or cut him till he cried out in his anger and his shame, I am leaving, I am leaving, but the fighter still remains. It's so good and it's so true. We carry the reminders with us. They're in our bodies, they're in our heart, they're in our head. It will just show up in different ways. Some of us were pounded by a heavyweight champion, and that's really hard to recover from. Others were hit over and over by a midweight. So we took a pretty big beating, and we're still working to recover from that. And others experienced sparring matches with an equal opponent. It was hard, but we learned a lot, and it made us stronger and better as a result. As for me, I think it was the midweight over and over. So I'll explain. One of the most surprising diagnoses for me as I was going through my mental health diagnosis and testing was PTSD. I'd only ever thought of PTSD as something that affected people that served in a war 
or were victims of crimes or violent abuse. My life was pretty good. I often think of Andy Bernard in the weight loss episode of The Office when he says, this is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I have not had a very hard life. But there it was. It showed up in my brain scans and in my mental health screening and in my behaviors. PTSD. Initially, I was baffled. And then the doctor used this example. You know those expanding ball toy things? He had one of those on his desk. And he said, when something scary happens that you need to be on alert for, your brain goes into high alert. And he expanded the ball and said, this is what your brain does. And this is what it's supposed to do. It's exactly what it's supposed to do. Then as things calm down, your hormones calm down and your brain goes back into its regular state. But then there's times when you're in a situation where your brain gets put into high alert over and over and over again. And that causes the brain to be in a state of fear long-term. It's like the boxer getting hit over and over and over again. After a while, it's hard to get back up. And after a while, the brain never goes back to its normal relaxed state. Your brain stays expanded all the time. I'd heard a similar analogy in a book that I read about infertility the first time we were going through infertility treatments. And this is such an incredible book. I cannot recommend it enough, especially to anyone going through infertility, obviously. It's about how infertility affects your mental health. And it's called Conquering Infertility. I loved this book because it was the first thing that I read that talked about what to do and how you can be okay if, let's say, you don't get pregnant, you don't have a baby. Every single thing that I'd been reading up to that point was, here's how to get pregnant. And I was starting to worry and think, maybe that's not what's going to happen and I need to be okay. That's why I loved this book. So again, it's called Conquering Infertility and the author is Alice Domar. In the book, she explains that the stress of infertility causes a continuing cycle of hypervigilance and fear. This book was the first time I learned mindfulness stress management techniques and the first mantra that I ever used and I continue to use to this day. I'll say peace and calm as I begin to meditate. This is the first time that I had considered that the pins and needles anxious feeling that I was living in was creating an unhealthy hormone soup for my brain and my body, perpetuating the infertility. When my psychiatrist used this sphere example to explain my PTSD, it all became very clear. I'd spent 10 years trying to get pregnant, being pregnant, with two high-risk pregnancies and one baby that ended up in the NICU, or nursing. And don't even get me started on the fear that immediately strikes your heart the second they hand you that precious tiny little human, and you realize that if anything were to happen, your whole world would just collapse. So I'd had my babies, and I was done getting and being pregnant, but my brain was stuck in that place of high alert, ready to fight, fly, or freeze whenever I was triggered. And I never knew what those triggers were. 
Since my diagnosis, I've started to pay more attention and read up on nonviolent PTSD. Nonviolent PTSD is usually caused by emotional trauma or an accumulation of stressors. It's often called complex PTSD. With PTSD, the brain fails to process trauma correctly. The brain doesn't file the memory of the event as being in the past. So the stress response stays active and the brain stays alert to any potential danger, even when it's safe. Things like sights, sounds, or smells become attached to the trauma memory and they can become triggers. One thing that I've noticed is time of year can be triggering. The position of the sun in the sky, the weather, the seasons, the music, especially if it's the holidays, can bring back those memories and make it feel like it was happening yesterday. So for example, the anniversary of an event will definitely be a time to consider that you may be having a trigger or a trauma response. Another interesting thing about nonviolent PTSD is that the symptoms can be different than those of violent PTSD. You don't have flashbacks or hypervigilance because you aren't reliving one terrible experience or a series of terrible experiences. When it's a cluster of small stressors that add up over time, it shows up different. Complex PTSD will show up in more subtle but destructive ways. Depression, anxiety, disassociation, distrust, shame, guilt, and my personal favorite and go-to, self-hatred. It was my fault that we dealt with infertility. It was my broken body. I must not be meant to be a mother. I'm a bad person. My husband deserved better than me. And on and on and on. So how is it that eight years after I gave birth to my last baby, I started experiencing more dramatic trauma responses. And it wasn't like I was responding this way to needles or syringes. There are so many needles and syringes involved in IVF. Or having a negative response to pregnant women or birth stories. I would get very emotional with other people's infertility stories. In 2020, just after the world shut down, I remember crying my eyes out for an entire afternoon for a woman I had never met who'd had her IVF cycle canceled because of the pandemic. I know how absolutely devastating that would have been. And I can't watch TV shows or movies that have complicated births or an infertility storyline. It's still just a little too close. But those responses weren't the things that were affecting my mental health. And those weren't the things that were wreaking havoc on my family. I thought of myself as a boxer in the midst of my infertility. I was fighting for my family, for the kids that were going to join my family as a result of our fight. And I used the word fight when I talked about what we were going through. I said things like, I'm fighting for a family, or we never stopped fighting. And I believed it was a fight. So my knowledge of boxing comes from the Rocky movies. So to all you real boxing people out there, I apologize if I'm way off on this analogy, but it's what I thought of. When you watch boxers, they'll get hit. And initially they look fine, they look normal, 
Then they get hit again and again, and they start to look worse and the hits start to take their toll. After a while, you got some bloody faces that look kind of like hamburger and the movies, they'll show that their vision is blurred. You'll see that they start wobbling when they walk and then there'll be a hit that knocks them down, but they rally and they fight and they get back up. And maybe, just maybe, they keep this up and they can win. And other times, there's one final hit that knocks them down and they're down for the count. I feel like we got out of our infertility fight before I couldn't get back up, but every hit rung my bell pretty good. And when you're going through infertility, those hits come like clockwork every month. But for me and for my husband, this fight was worth it all. And there was a lot. I still haven't talked about the financial toll, the emotional toll, the challenge that it can be on a relationship. And I have to say, I am so blessed with my husband because he never ever pushed back. He wanted a family as much as I did, and he was willing to do everything I wanted to do to have a family. And I'm very, very lucky in that. So it was all worth it. We had the most incredible kids. They were adorable. Seriously, the cutest kids. Super fun and so funny. I remember just laughing, like thinking, I don't think I've ever laughed this much and they had the best laughs. We have videos minutes long of my kids just laughing. And they were my buddies and my besties. They followed me around, they talked to me all day long and I laughed at everything that they had to say or do. One of the things that I think I love the most is when you see your child when you haven't seen them for a little bit and they just run into your arms and you just scoop them up. It's, it's magic. And then I had my older boys with me when I was going through the hardest infertility, which was when I was trying to become pregnant with my girls and then ended up on bed rest and had a lot of complications as related to that. And they were so sweet and so loving and brought me so much joy. I'd had some ambition in my life growing up. I had some pretty big dreams. But what I really wanted was a family. And once I had children, I knew being a mom was my calling and my purpose. And I didn't want anything else. I'd had everything that I'd ever wanted. They were worth the physical toll, everything. This was my family and these were my people and we were having so much fun. Until we weren't. I wasn't. The thing about babies is they grow up and they go to school and they do exactly what they are supposed to do. They leave the nest and they start becoming their own people, just like I grew up and became my own person. But my brain thought it needed to fight. My brain needed to protect me from the hurt of a loss. And a kid growing up is a loss. I am so sorry to break that to any of you new moms out there. I know there's irony in all of this. My brain was protecting me from hurt, pain, or loss. And my kids were what I was afraid of losing. And my kids 
or what I was afraid of losing when I was going through all of the infertility. It's a circle, and if I think about it too much, it can get a little bit confusing. And the crazy thing is, with my brain trying to protect me from hurt, pain, or loss, it was keeping me in hurt, pain, and loss. My kids were what I fought for. And then guess what that meant to my brain? My brain found it necessary to fight my kids. And I'm using the word my brain here because until the diagnosis and thought work and therapy and coaching, this was all very much unconscious. My brain just did its thing. I was a self-driving car with a pretty messed up computer virus. My triggers were my children. So guess who got the brunt of my fight, flight, or freeze response? And I did all three at the same time or in rapid succession. That's right, it was my kids. The title of this podcast is Messages from the Middle. I'm still in the middle of this. I'm still working on it and I can still get triggered. In fact, I had one of my biggest trauma responses just a week ago and I thought that I was doing better, but it's gonna come back. But I've learned a few things and so I wanna share some of those with you. So first of all, I want to restate that I am not a therapist or a doctor or any of those things. Again, just a girl who's been through some stuff. So if you suspect that you are having a trauma response and possible PTSD, I recommend finding a good therapist and one who works with PTSD and complex PTSD. I had a therapist in the treatment center that I went to who would say quite frequently that avoiding a trigger is a symptom and not the cure for trauma. Did you get that? Avoiding triggers is not how you heal. It's a symptom. When it comes to healing trauma, the only way out is through. And I know it's going to hurt, but doing the work and doing the things, that's how we get stronger and that's how we heal. So the most important thing that I can do is to notice when I'm triggered. This might sound simple, but it's not. It took a coach I was working with to point out that I was doing all three trauma responses at once for me to realize what I was doing. So notice when you suddenly feel the need to fight. Not just feel the need, but act on it. Or do you flee? I noticed I would act out by yelling something mean and defensive before my prefrontal cortex had a chance to assess the situation. Then after yelling, I would run. Sometimes to another place in my house. Other times I would leave the house and sometimes overnight. Then there's the freeze response. Do you shut down, not talk, maybe even not move? I do this one a lot. That's right, I said do. This is kind of my new jam. I just don't talk. It looks like I'm listening, but in my mind, I'm running away. I usually look for a way to change the subject, and my very favorite thing to do is to change the subject with humor. So start paying attention to how you respond to different circumstances. From there, you can start to identify what's creating these responses in you. Identifying the trigger and naming it 
just naming what triggers you is an incredible skill and will help you tremendously. Many times now I can feel one of those responses coming on and I can say, oh, hey, yeah, it's whatever, blankety blank again. I call it out and I name it. And it means I'm no longer on autopilot. It means I'm taking back my power. And sometimes I get to tell my kids or my husband, this thing is a trigger or I'm actually having a trauma response right now. And usually then it will be followed with, oh, I didn't realize that this was a trigger for me before. And telling the people around me that are affected by my trauma response, a lot of times stops me from reacting and at least lets them know that I need a minute. My husband is really good with this. If I need to be alone to process for a while, he'll give me the space. And it's also helpful because either I or my husband can explain to the kids what's going on. I know that my responses in the past would scare my kids and worse, they would feel like it's their fault. And I don't ever want them to feel like any of this is their fault. The second one that I've learned, and this one takes work, especially when flight and isolation are your go-to coping mechanisms, they're mine, is to stay. There's a difference between being unsafe and feeling unsafe. So take the time to notice that you are safe. Obviously, in a situation where you're not safe, by all means, run, get out of there. But if you recognize that you are safe and that whatever it is that has you triggered is not happening right now, then find ways to be present. So one that works for me is to pick a color and look for something in that color. So I'll say, find something red. Find five things that are blue. What's yellow? Are there plants in this room? How many plants are in this room? And that brings me into the present and the here and now. Then connect to your breath. To become present and feel connected, I track the way my breath feels coming into my body. So I'll feel it coming in my nose. It goes up into the upper part of my nasopharynx and then down my laryngopharynx. I feel where the breath is going, or I will breathe as though my heart is doing the breathing. And that brings me into my heart and out of my head. You can tell yourself these feelings that I'm having are being caused by sentences in my brain. You are safe. I'll give this about five minutes. Then I allow myself to walk away and take some time to process. It's also very important that you don't medicate or buffer this feeling away. Whether that's Xanax, alcohol, food, video games, or any mind-altering drug. I am looking at you, THC. By medicating or buffering this feeling away, you actually reinforce the pattern because the brain gets an immediate false pleasure dopamine hit. So the brain goes, ooh, hard things, get scared, get quick dopamine. I like it. The problem is it will take more and more of the false pleasure dopamine hit to appease that primal brain. Where if you stay in your feelings and process and move through your emotion, your brain will create effective and helpful neuropathways 
without the negative side effects of the false pleasure band-aid loop. When you are processing a trigger and the response, write it down. Just pull out a pen and write. I confess I'm not great at this. Number one, I worry that by writing it, I will make it permanent, which is not true. In fact, research, and by that I mean Brene Brown, has noticed that when we write things down and look at it, we're more able to look at the situation with logic and reasoning. For example, after writing down one of my most recent triggers, I was able to recognize that my children are in fact not out to ruin my life. Also by writing it down, you're able to find patterns that will help in the future. Here's another tip. Go back and read what you wrote and notice what's your primal brain, what sentences are your primal brain just trying to protect you and keep you in a safe cocoon? And what's actual fact? What's an actual circumstance? Underline what is a fact and write a P next to what is that primal brain just trying to protect you. This will really help you recognize that these circumstances are not what are hurting you. It is your thoughts about those things that are hurting you. And your primal brain is doing its job, but sometimes we can just say, oh, thank you so much for trying to protect me, but I'm actually safe right now. Also, if you're worried about someone finding what you wrote, just destroy it. You don't have to keep it. I like to have a little burn party or a shred party, or even better, I now write it down on my iPad and then immediately delete it. As far as working on healing PTSD, there are many recommended treatments for PTSD. So first of all, medication may be prescribed for depression and anxiety that happen as a result of PTSD. I've already gone on my soapbox about medication in the last episode, and if you haven't listened to that, please do. There's a lot of useful information in there, I promise. But I'm not gonna go on too much about medication here. Just remember, get the full assessment and get the genetic test so you can find the right medication for yourself. Then there's talk therapy. Therapy with a good therapist trained in dealing with PTSD that you trust and you know is doing the right thing for you is really helpful. It really does help to talk about these things with a trained professional and they can give you perspective and coping mechanisms and skills that will help you as you move through this process of healing your PTSD. And a lot of times, just saying something out loud takes away its power. EMDR is one of the most highly recommended treatments for PTSD. EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing. Say that 10 times fast. Initially, it had you moving your eyes side to side, but now most therapists are using other forms of bilateral stimulation. What is bilateral stimulation, you ask? Well, it's a right-left rhythmic stimuli that can either be tactile, audio, or visual. There's all this sciency information on why it works, and if you want all that sciency info, I'll leave a link in the show notes to an episode of the Huberman Lab podcast where he goes into pretty good detail on EMDR and why it works. Um, Also, I'm just gonna put in a plug for the Huberman Lab. The man's a genius and he covers this information really well, but it's very sciencey. So for the purposes of 
this podcast, I'm going to say that it interrupts patterns. If you're conditioned to react a certain way to something, using bilateral stimuli, you interrupt the pattern and you allow the brain to work through its regular learning process so you can reprocess the response. That sounded a little sciencey too. So here's what I'll say. These responses live in one side of the brain or the other. So if you can find a way to move things back and forth, the brain has to move back and forth and that thought can no longer stay stuck. So taking a ball and passing it from side to side. This is why tapping is also effective. When I did EMDR, I had headphones that played a binaural beat that went side to side and I also held tappers in my hand that vibrated side to side. You can find things like this. Binaural beats are everywhere on the internet now. There's even apps that specifically focus on binaural beats. So any kind of lateral stimulation is actually great for trauma responses. When you do EMDR with a therapist, you will have headphones or the tappers or something that's doing bilateral stimulation. While the therapist is talking to you about the memory or whatever it is that is affecting you. For example, the therapist will bring up the memory, ask you how you're feeling about it, you'll respond, and then they'll turn on the beats or the tappers or whatever form of bilateral stimulation that they're using to interrupt the pattern and help you reprocess that memory and your response. This is a ridiculous oversimplification of a kind of a little more complex system and it is an extra training above and beyond what most therapists do for their degrees so you know take that like I said as a girl who's read some stuff and learned a few things when you are just triggered and you're home and alone you can do things like this I'll put in my airpods and I will find binaural beats and just let them work side to side and just interrupt the pattern that my brain and body just want to do on autopilot. Another form of therapy that I've heard really amazing things about, but I've never actually done, is called Gestalt therapy. And I haven't done it because I've not been able to find a practitioner in my area that does Gestalt. But I've listened to a podcast and I'm going to throw in another plug that's called the Full Cup Podcast. It's so good. If you have any kind of mental health issues, I'm telling you, that's such a great place to go. The information, it's, it's a goldmine of amazing information. Gestalt therapy helps you focus on here and now. And there's four main, I think it's like pillars or I can't think of the right word, foundations of Gestalt. But the one that I love and that I'm very interested in is called the empty chair. And this is where you'll have a conversation with the person or the memory. Sometimes you will be having a conversation with old Wendy, younger Wendy, other Wendy, um, you know, other versions of you or the memory of something. And you will speak to an empty chair. And in that chair is the person, the memory, another version of you. And you'll tell it what it's done to you and how it hurts you 
And the goal is to get free. So you can even say, you hurt me, you did these things to me, but I'm not gonna let you hurt me anymore. And then you'll go sit in the other chair and you'll respond to yourself as that person, memory, whatever. And it's your perspective on that person. And it will go back and forth for a while where you will be responding back to yourself like, oh yeah, well, I still have you in my grips and I can mess with you anytime you want. And that means you're still believing it. And you go back and forth until it gets to the point where you recognize that it's not happening anymore. You're in the here and now and you can get free of whoever or whatever is keeping you captive. Another highly effective form of therapy that worked amazing for me is hypnotherapy. And I'm gonna put a big old warning on this to make sure that you do your research and find a really good practitioner. I'm gonna hope she doesn't mind throw out, I worked with a girl named Eliza Rouse and she was just fantastic. She helped me uncover a lot of the things that were causing my anxiety and the depression. At the time that I went to her, I was literally having crippling anxiety and depression and I had no idea why. So therapy was useless because I would go in and I had no idea what to talk about or what to work on. I blinded my brain or my conscious brain to anything that was hurtful. And after even just one session with her, it was amazing to recognize how things from my past were still showing up in my present and just the way that I was still interpreting different things. And then it gave me information to process and deal with on my own and also to take to my therapist. And she also gave me information and tools to help me process the emotions during the session, which was really amazing and incredibly helpful. It was very impressive to see that my body was literally screaming things at me through my subconscious, but I needed the hypnotherapist to help translate what my body was trying to tell me through this anxiety so I could name it and figure out what was going on. The day after my first session was the first day in years that I didn't wake up feeling like my house was on fire. And of course, I can't end without talking about the importance of just overall healthy habits in dealing with PTSD and in recovery. Exercise, diet, meditation, prayer, get outside, see the sunlight, feel the fresh air on your face. Cold immersion therapy that everybody's talking about, so I'm gonna throw it in there. All these things that just help you to deal with your health will help you on your mental health healing journey. Here's a recent example. I teach Pilates and at our studio, we just started using a technique called balance, but it's spelled B-A-L-L-A-N-C-E. So I'm gonna try to explain this perfectly. I won't, but you have two balls about the size of a softball connected with a spring that's about an inch or so long in the middle. And then you have two balls about the size of a tennis ball connected with a spring in the middle. And they're a hard plastic. And you'll place these balls at different places along your spine. And the purpose of this technique is to help align your spine and help with back pain. 
but it has a really cool side effect. As you get your spine all together and in line, it calms your fight or flight response. It does something really funky with your nervous system. A few weeks ago, I had just done a balance session with my teacher, mentor, and felt amazing and then got up, got a text message with information, with things that normally would have just sent me into all of my responses. And I remember reading this message and I felt calm. And the biggest thing was I not only felt calm, but I felt like I can handle this. I know what to do here. You guys, this is so huge. So this is just one example of how our physical body and taking care of our physical body can help you with your mental health. So that's all that I have for today. I want to hear from you. I would love to hear anything or any information that anyone has about PTSD and CPTSD. And let me know where you are in your story. So let's keep the conversation going. On Instagram, I'm at Child Songbird, and I'm keeping it. I'm pretty married to that name. Or you can email me. That's Wendy at messagesfromthemiddle.com. I need you to know that you are loved and you matter no matter where you are in your story. So we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for joining me in the middle of my story. My theme music is White Linen by Asher Child. He's my kid. You can find all of his amazing music on all streaming platforms. And you know, it just wouldn't be a podcast if I didn't ask you to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. But seriously, it would really mean so much to me if you did. Thank you so much and see you next time.